Welcome to the Food Professor Podcast, Season 3, Episode 19. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm the Food Professor, Sylvain Chalabois. Well, Sylvain, I'm back from Vegas, getting ready for Easter turkey on the weekend. Yes. Uh, so you got to know, I'm happy about that. A question for you, are you team turkey or team ham? Well, you know, we used to be team ham, but uh, we're, we're, tr- we're adventurous. We're looking around. Mm-hmm. We're open uh, for ideas. What about you? Well, listen, I, I, listeners would know I will take any excuse to eat turkey. Uh, so it is all about turkey. My wife doesn't actually like ham. She doesn't mind uh, pork, but she doesn't like the taste of ham. So it's kind of out, uh, out of the uh, out of the range anyway. Listen, very special guest on this episode: Jake Carls, co-founder and rainmaker uh, of Midday Squares, Forbes Thirty Under Thirty, Quebec-based entrepreneur. I mean, his and his partners are on their way to creating a fourth major chocolate bar company. What an interview! What a journey they're on. A lot of lessons to be learned from uh, our conversation with Jake Absolutely. and how they went to market. All right, so let's jump into the news. Uh, let's. I wanted to start with the budget debrief. So our last episode, we touched on the budget, but it hadn't actually been released yet. And there was some. It was kind of a leaky budget, actually. You know, like some things were already being leaked, which was uh, unusual. There um, were more I, leaks than on the Titanic, for goodness' yeah, sake. I know. I, I guess there's both a mix of leaks and a mix of anticipated change. Now, one of the things you and I had talked about, and the restaurant industry had geared all their lobbying up to, was this six percent, six point two percent increase in in yeah. beverage and alcohol costs. Now, the government rolled that back, heard the noise, and and rolled that back. I think to two percent. There was something about a grocery rebate. Anything? What What was your sense of the of the budget and the in, of course, in the context of the food industry. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, uh, with the escalator tax, with the federal esca- escalator task, uh, the Ottawa read the room. I mean, clearly, I don't think it was the right time to to basically implement a 6.3% uh, increase in the federal mm-hmm. tax because uh, it's linked to inflation, and that's what we were looking at for April 1st. So that was changed. It was capped at 2%. I think it's Yep. I think the cap is not going to be just this year, but it wasn't clarified. But I think it's actually a win for for the industry, for food service as well. I, Restaurants Canada was very pleased uh, with the decision. I, I think it was the right yeah, thing to do. That's a win for them. Yeah, that's correctly. a win for I mean, them. And- right now, there's... There, there, there is a mounting number of taxes that uh, mm-hmm. industry needs to cope with, and it's it's been problematic. And uh, and of course, uh, there's been a lot of discussion over the weekend on social media about about the carbon tax, which was raised to sixty five dollars a metric ton mm-hmm. across the board for the first time. I mean, we've had BC and, and Quebec both have had uh, a uh, a carbon tax uh, since two thousand seven two thousand and eight, but it never actually went beyond fifty dollars a metric ton so this is the first time and now canada has the seventh highest carbon tax in the world so a lot of people are concerned frankly honestly i don't really uh, i actually do think that there's some merit with the policy itself Mm -hmm. but when it comes to the food industry i've always been uncomfortable because you're 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 playing with fire a little bit you could compromise you know some of our food security, some of our food of food affordability. I think the environment is an important issue, mm. uh, but uh, at stig- and we're marching closer to a carbon tax of a hundred and seventy dollars a metric ton. And I don't think anybody really looked into the numbers and see exactly how processing farmers, everyone else, has actually would be impacted. Now, gladly, Bill C-234 passed Parliament last week. So that was very good news. 
Yeah, with no help from the Minister of Agriculture. So uh, with allies like that, you know, the farmers got to be wondering who's got their back. Yeah. I mean, with the entire Liberal Party voted and, and against it, thing, including the minister. Actually, except for four, four Liberals actually did vote in favor of the bill. So okay. you could have seen the Ag rank. Minister yeah. vote in favor of the bill. I don't think there was any party restrictions there. So you got to wonder... What's going on here? I mean, clearly Bill C-234 is intended to help farmers cope with, with the carbon tax. I mean, when you actually have to dry, uh, dry propane and heat your barn, there are, aren't many options right now. Mm-hmm. So and, just, it's, it's, and just for the listeners, we should, we should just touch on it that the, that bill, because we talked about it in previous episodes, exempted farmers and certain uh, farming communities from that carbon tax entirely or from the increase of the carbon tax, which was which was it? For that bill, it would be for uh, for for entirely basically. Now it has to go through Senate, and because it's a private uh, it's a private members bill, sessions in Senate can last forever. By the way, there's no time limit. Just so you yeah. know, so yeah. there's uh, yeah, so yeah. it's 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 not it's not a slam dunk yet. But yeah. overall, the carbon there was no mention of the carbon tax and the in the budget. Although there's some massive investments in clean tech, which is likely going to help. Yeah, but the but the grocery rebate. I don't know what your thoughts are about the grocery rebate, but I thought it was my goodness, uh, uh, just you know playing with words, a cute name to uh, to give to a, a an amplified uh, GST rebate program. That's because that's really what it is. You're just basically sending money to people. They don't have to spend it on food. Uh, it's 11 million people getting extra money. Are you no. actually going to help people? My guess, I don't think so. You may actually make things worse because as soon as you've actually put in $2.5 billion more in the economy as a government, you could, again, add fuel to the fire. What were your thoughts well, about the grocery rebate? Well, listen, I mean, on, on the surface, uh, you know, it's just uh, the, the Trudeau government uh, is, is let's just say, not a subtle marketing organization. But, you know, listen, if it's going to the right people, uh, you know, the counter to your argument is that it's taking people out of a food bank. And if that's the case. I don't think if, it will, actually. Why not? Isn't, isn't it allocated food banks, on? Food banks actually said it was a bad idea because they know it's not going to keep the. It's a one-time payment mm. for family four. It's four hundred seventy-six-seven dollars. It's mm. not going to help. It's uh, it's probably going to help maybe for one or two visits at the grocery store. But they'll go back to the. It's it, it's not a, a long-time solution, long-term solution. Yeah. And I actually yeah. wrote in my op-ed in the Toronto Sun last week. That perhaps it's time to think about, you know, setting up some sort of a a um, a, a food benefit program for mm. the needy uh, and and give out stamps. I mean, I know it. Like the I U.S. Know, U.S. has a food stamp program, right? And it's worth billions of dollars. I mean, I I I must. It's not going to cost just two point five billion if you set up a program like that. But here's the deal. Like mm. I lived in the U.S. for six months last year. When people got stamps. They go to the grocery store to use them, and that's it. That's the only place they can go. And you, you can't buy just anything. You can't just buy chips and beer. You have to buy specific products that are healthy for you. Hmm. And uh, you know, when when you're thinking about the local economy and supporting our farmers and things like that, perhaps it's time now to think about a program hmm. like that. Uh, I don't know. Like, 
with with an inflation rate at 10%, you got to start thinking outside the box here and not not just send money for a one-time payment. I I, I think I just thought that the, that Ottawa was playing a dangerous game here. Maybe yeah. it's the next uh, the next version of the uh, what what was it? There's some d- programs for dentists and dental programs. Maybe that needs to be the next thing. It's funny that uh, America has food stamps that we don't. If you think about it, yeah. You know, if you think but it's part, it. as you know, it's part of the farm bill. So it's ran. The food stamp program is ran mm. by the USDA. And when you look at Ottawa's pecking order versus Washington's pecking order. The FDA and USDA are up there. Ad Canada mm. is right down here. You know, yeah, it's yeah. it's just not influential. That's the problem. Would you give billions of dollars to Ad Canada to run a food stamp program? I wouldn't. Not based on what we've seen with other things that they've been involved in at this point. I wouldn't. So I wouldn't. that it's it's a cloud thing. So I suspect that if it would happen in Ottawa, it would be given to the Ministry of. Uh, of, of families and citizenship, but it's a, it would be, that's why I've always believed that perhaps it's time to start thinking about creating a ministry of food specifically, not just yeah, ag. Yeah. Food. That's actually an idea that Kristen Hebert brought up in our interview with him. He said, that's listen, right. if you wanted to have a stronger presence, just get away from calling it farms and people will care more. It's food. It's, it's all I, food. I, I get it. And I've, uh, I've, I've always believed that it's time to do that because it would bring mm. more attention to food in Ottawa, connecting both ends of the food continuum, including farmers uh, who are, I would say, completely misunderstood these days. Well, let's uh, let's move on to this survey you've just released. You released a couple of days ago. A new survey. Majority of Canadians distrust grocers but do blame other factors. Uh, so, um, my most survey. Your- Here's the thing, Mike. You mm. saw surveys, right? People hate grocers. Mm-hmm. But the questions asked by pollers uh, were very simplistic. They were, they were asking people, do you believe that grocers are gouging? Yes or no? Mm. You mm. Know? It was a Pierre Poilievre question, yes or no? And, of course, people said yes. What we did was identify what you think is the main factor – driving food prices and it's not clear cut you saw results right yeah it's not I, that I, mean, cut. I mean i'm looking through the results i get a lot of questions for you so uh first of all you did this it's a uh, dal and and uh, cattle, cattle. Your partner did this yep. together so that's the sponsor just so we're clear on you know who's behind uh, this research just the research agency and yourself basically let's see 50 the highest in the province 51 percent uh, in actually 52 percent 51.8 in uh, in Nova Scotia believe the grocery chain is gouging is the main reason now you're based in Nova Scotia aren't you maybe uh, maybe they're listed to you uh, a lot on the on the media what's maybe what, I should move <laughs> <laughs> no but seriously I, I, I Michael I, I, I yeah. wasn't surprised because every time I went on air here uh, when I gave interviews uh, to radio stations here, uh, I've always like open lines. Yeah, yeah. People were calling in saying I'm wrong. Uh, Sobe's and Loblaws are out to get us. There's some mm. some corruption going on. I mean, it's it's it was pretty intense in in Toronto with the chicken breast and everything else. I mean, Toronto's big, right? There's lots of stuff going on. So I actually think you know what? I oh, actually good. thought results were mm. really good. Why? Because I actually think that Canadians are smarter than what they're showing on social media. <laughs> We've talked about that often. Social media is not reality. That's uh, right, yeah. 
Uh, let's see. Uh, what do you let- think about the results? Well, I thought, you know, I thought it was interesting. Here's the number that, that jumped out at me right away that I think it was a 35% of Canadians were actually paying attention to the testimony. You know, they, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I was like, who I listens was, to that stuff? Who listens to that stuff? I mean, 35% of Canadians watching parliamentary <laughs> testimony. What the hell is going on? Um, that was weird. Just, yeah, it was I weird. I mean, either that's an anomaly or it's just an indicator People of... People have of, nothing else to do. There was nothing <laughs> on that night. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I watched it. I was transfixed, but I'm in the industry, right? I'm not yeah, exactly. consumer. But my wife was watching it with me as we were making dinner, actually, and she was quite interested in the whole thing. So Your wife? Um, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were watching wow. it. Now, part of it is because she knows I know all the players and... And right. uh, she she kind of puts a name to a face, and and she had her own opinions. Thought they they presented themselves quite well. Um, I thought so too. So let's see. Uh, um, loyalty programs could be more generous. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting in loyalty the price programs. Price freeze you, is the number one thing that came up. Price freeze. Uh, loyalty programs are really in play right now. That was a big buzz in Vegas. This idea of first party data, by the way, uh, where you kind of get to own the data, and you saw Empire Sobies do that, buying in. To the scene program and and even two weeks ago you saw the air miles program go into protection and then purchased by uh bmo which is, uh, yeah, and oh, yeah. is air miles is at uh, as at metro so that you know loyalty programs are certainly in play and canadians love loyalty programs. anyway i thought i thought to your point you know a percentage of people think it's the grocer's fault but um you but know did you notice those- that there are two provinces where gouging is actually not the number one Factor number Quebec one factor in Quebec. Yeah, they in actually Quebec. think it's monetary policy and fiscal policies. I yeah. wonder. It, 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 now, would you attribute that to the fact that there's more that people are more savvy, more pay more attention to agriculture in those two provinces, and know the big and get a sense of the bigger picture? And and what do you, what's your sense of that result? Well, or they just don't like uh, they just don't like the federal government, one or the other, right? I I think it, there's a lot of that going on. I think, mm. uh, but. Um, I mean, if you, I've always believed that British Columbia is certainly one province uh, that is very co- well connected with farming. They understand supply chain sure. economics. Sure. But uh, no, I was actually pleased to see at least two provinces where really uh, price gouging in retail wasn't necessarily the most uh, significant factor. So I, and frankly, I think I think the needle is moving a little bit. I think people are kind of tired of saying okay so we're pointing fingers at grocers so what i mean there's uh, and i've mm-hmm. been and you know i've, I've been out there saying mm. listen canada's has has one of the lowest food inflation rates in the g7 i mean it, this is a global phenomenon maybe maybe people are starting to understand that this is a little bit more complicated than just pointing fingers at galen weston mm. i don't know maybe i'm too hopeful well all right let's take a break now for the news and let's hear from jake carls co-founder rainmaker midday squares well jake welcome to the food professor it's a great uh, it's a great honor to have you uh on our podcast today so tell us uh, to start things off tell us a little bit about yourself uh, your background and generally what do you do for a living oh i love that i'm fired up thanks for <laughs> first of all thanks for having me you know y'all are y'all are great energy just had a good conversation with you guys five minutes before so fired up but for me i've always been the class clown you know that 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 that's that's who i am um you know you know in high school i um i didn't do well academically it just wasn't my strength and all i did was was prank professors and and make noise cause trouble and 
everyone loved me, believe it or not. But then when grade 11 came around and I had to graduate, my parents were called to the principal's office because they wanted to tell them that I wasn't going to graduate because my grades were so bad. And in that moment, I realized I was no hero anymore. I was no, the class clown is no, is no superstar because basically me staying back while everyone goes forward, it just puts me backwards while everyone else is going forward. So in that moment, I said, you know what? I'm going to take my academics seriously. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to follow that path and do what everyone else is doing and, and stop being that class clown because it's getting me into trouble. And I remember I went to Marianopolis College after that, studied business, took everything so seriously academically, but I wasn't being authentic to myself. You know, I was kind of going out there just doing it for the sake of following the herd or following everyone else in, in my, in my you know, community, let's call it. And I graduated from Marianopolis and I went to Western University to study actuarial science. So actuarial, for those who are listening that don't know what it is, it's basically just deep math and statistics. And it's, it's like guardrail very, to guardrail, Jake. Yeah. It's guardrail to guardrail. Yeah, He's guardrail a class clown actuarian. Come on. Yeah, could you imagine? And so I, but I, I wasn't doing it because I wanted to. I was doing it because I wanted to show to everyone that I'm no longer the class clown. That was really the goal. It's like if I could study this, dominate it, do very well – then people might not look at me as that, that kid anymore that was making jokes all the time and not taking life seriously. And I'll never forget third year of university, I was doing bad. Like I wasn't getting good grades, 50s, 60s, maybe a little bit of 70s, which is nice, but um, mostly the 50s and 60s. And I was struggling. I couldn't do it. I really couldn't. I couldn't give it. And I'll never forget, I watched Shark Tank one. I think it was the third year I watched Shark Tank. And I saw a guy pitch his dream on, on a screen. I really watched this individual. He must have been 50 years old. He had two kids, he had two more or three kids, two mortgages. And he looked so free, even though he had so much responsibility and I had no responsibility and I was miserable. And I'll never forget in that moment, I decided that I don't know what this guy is doing for a living or if his business is going to make it, but I need to try whatever he's trying because that guy looks like he's on cloud nine, even though his life is so much more strenuous or stressful than mine. And that's when I decided to launch my first business, which was a fitness company. And that did really well. I was basically doing outdoor boot camps on my parents' driveway. And I made a lot of capital doing that. Like, I'm talking like, you know, it was insane at 20 years old making that kind of money. Um, I, I looked like a hero again, you know. And my friends in investment banking that were doing that were making less than me per summer. And so I was like, I was killing it. I was happy. I was on fire. And then two and a half years into that, I lost passion for actual fitness. Like, I stopped loving it. And it started becoming a chore for me to do all this stuff. And that's when I closed that business and launched a second business because I was so addicted to the idea of this freedom of entrepreneurial spirits that I ended up launching a clothing business that threw parties on college campuses across Canada. And that was very successful in terms of the story and the brand. But from a business perspective, it was horrible. I failed so bad. I didn't know how to run a business. I lost $82,000. I went bankrupt. And I learned a lesson that that is not my strength. Running a business is not who I am. I do not know how to do ops. I am not good with accounting. I am not good with the legal work. I am not good with management. So what I'm really good at is being able to build community and storytelling and build brand. And that's when my sister and my brother-in-law knocked on my door and they're like, hey, we have this amazing chocolate bar called Midday Squares. It's not ready to launch yet. Sorry, it's about a month away from launching. We have, we've developed the product with McGill. We've done all the work to commercialize it. It's ready to go. We just need a third partner to come in and blow up the brand. And in my mind, I was like, I'm not a foodie. So why would I do this? And I was kind of like, it's time for me to get a job because I've done five years of entrepreneurship. I'm exhausted now. I've had success on one and failed on the other. My ego's a little bit shot. I feel like I don't know my identity right now again. And they're like, you, all you need to do is be you. All you need to do is come in here, make noise, build the brand, 
and be yourself. And we will run the business and be do the operations while you go out there and build the brand. And in my mind, I was like, oh my God, that's me getting to play the, play the game to my strength and not my weaknesses and don't have to worry about anything I don't like. And that's when I joined forces. August 4th, 2018, we launched Midday Squares, which is the first functional chocolate bar. And it's been almost now four and a half years that we've, we're still going. And uh, yeah, I feel like I'm finally being authentic to myself by being the class clown within a corporation. And uh, yeah, so I learned that life is difficult, but it goes, it's not linear and it's okay to go zigzag, but you got to stay true to who you are. And that's, that's really what I've learned over the last decade of entrepreneurship. Tell us a little bit about Midday Squares, uh, the, the, the origin of the, of the story, the product. Uh, you know, talk to us like we don't know the product, basically. Hot. I love that. I love doing that. It's like talking to sometimes my buyers in the US, they don't know who we are and got to give them a pitch. <laughs> um, so yeah, Midday Square's first functional chocolate bar. The idea was basically my sister was making this snack for my brother-in-law um, as an afternoon chocolate indulgence that was better for you that had some sort of protein and fiber because he was addicted to eating chocolate at like 2 p.m. And when she made this snack, it was a hobby at first. It was like 2016. And she was making it as literally a healthier snack for him in the afternoon. And he brought it to his office and everyone freaked out for it. Everyone loved it. And fast forward two years, nothing happened with that product. But my sister ended up closing her fashion business. My brother-in-law sold out of his software company and they wanted to work together on a company. And they, they knew that they both loved food, but the product was literally right in front of their eyes. They were making it every day, but that wasn't the product they first wanted to launch. The first one was morning oats and that was a failure or they realized they couldn't make a better product than anything on the market. And one day my brother-in-law received a report from a large corporation here in Canada, a, a large food conglomerate. And it showed that real chocolates or darker chocolate was growing rapidly year over year. And that vegan protein, so plant proteins, was also on a tear year over year. And he realized in his head, oh, my God, Leslie, my sister, his wife, was making a baby of these two massive growth categories that are saturated markets. But she's like, oh, my God, you're making a chocolate bar that has plant protein fibers functional. And this is what the market needs. It's a white space that will actually have customer pull when we launch. And that's what the product was. It was literally a chocolate bar that gives you high protein, high fiber, good fats, and keeps you full for two to three hours, but it's also better for you. So it's not full of the junk that you eat all the time. And that's when they came to me and they're like, hey, we need you to help build this brand and make noise. And my first thing was the food space is boring. You go to the grocery store, it feels like you're buying commodities. And it was such an intimate experience when you have food and beverage it goes in your body. And I felt that there was not that many brands doing a good job on creating an emotional connection with consumers. Well, you know, you go to a cosmetic store or you go to a store like Nike and people feel something deeply with the brands. They're so excited about the brands. They want to be part of the brands. They want to talk about them on social media. They want to, they'll pay any premium on the products because they're like, oh, I love being part of this brand. But yet in food, everything was based on price and function. So commodity driven stuff, rather than, hey, this is a cool brand, I love them, I'm going to support them, and I love their product, because it's a good product. So I felt that that was missing, that was my role to come in and kind of deliver that. And what we did to deliver that was simple, was we created a reality show on how we're building the business, showing the good, the bad, the ugly of building this chocolate company. We, we like, saw several videos <laughs> of that. <laughs> yeah, so that was my idea. Very that interesting. My, that was my big pitch then when I first came on, I was like, guys, We'll take the best of the Kardashians, mix it with Shark Tank, <laughs> and then mix it with like Elon Musk in terms of just like being unapologetic, not the way that you know he is, but the way that we are unapologetically ourselves. And what that did was it created a, 
a emotional connection that made the consumer feel like they were buying from a friend or a family member when they went to the grocery store. So according to the 40,000 different products on the shelf, we would stand right out like a diamond in the fridge because the consumer knew who we were and felt close to the brand and already attached to the brand before even trying the product. It's funny you describe that as simple because that uh, that is far far from. Oh yeah, simple. it was hard. It was hard. I want to I want to get I want to dive into that later because I think you've got so many great lessons uh, to share with uh, with listeners with the industry. I want to talk about your trade and selling. So you mentioned uh, U.S. buyers. You've got some amazing retail partners. Target, for example. Now that doesn't just happen. These folks just don't watch videos and suddenly list product the way they've listed you. Talk about how you've grown the company. And your approach to actually get sitting in front of a buyer, getting those listings, and the lessons you've learned for other uh, that you can share with other Canadian food innovators. The key is one thing, and then I'll talk about sub things that we do. But the number one thing is I always say make friends first, then do business. And what that means is go figure a way to become friends with the people that you might work with in the future with a no agenda. And what that meant was I would go out every day and find people that work at Target, that work at all these places. And try to build a friendship with them. So not ask them for anything, but hey, you guys in the industry, you know, we're in the industry. Let's just connect. There's no agenda here. Mm. Let's try to be friends. And if it works, great. And then down the line, if we continue to be friends and then we get a chance to work together, it Mm. will be so much better. Okay, unpack that for me because buyers are notoriously skeptical of people trying to make friends with them because, you know, it is not a it's not a hidden agenda. In some ways, you're making friends, as you say, you're making friends to just get in. But, you know, these guys, you know, these men and women, they're professional. They're professionally pitched every day. So you went to conferences, you reached out on LinkedIn. Like what? Talk a little bit about that. So so what I would do is number one is Midday Squares as the company, like we would build everything out loud. Again, the reality show of on on social media. So you would see us authentically in the most vulnerable sets of like, we would talk about our therapy, our breakdowns, our milestones, our, our moments of complete, utter chaos and adversity. So you'd see a real authentic, um, human beings that are really just giving it their all. And when you see that, you're like, there's two things you either think about that this is all a sham or you think that, oh my God, this is so relatable. This is so refreshing. It's mm. so different to see people in this lens that not, don't just talk about you know, amazing things, but they talk about the imperfections, the, the, the difficulties, the hardships, the moments where our, people might feel fearful to share with people. And what that did was it actually got the word out very quickly in the industry mm. where this company is authentically radically authentic and you either love us or you you hate us it's actually one or the other and when what a lot of the time is we'll find the buyers have seen our stuff seen our content so Mm. when i reach out to Mm. them on linkedin or i show up and give a keynote at a conference or go to a trade show they already feel that energy they know our energy and they want to actually be part of that energy they want to meet and see if it's really the real deal in person i was just going to say that they want to meet and see if this is real or if this is all just a manufactured image to get them to sign a po right exactly and you've got to be so authentic in what you do without you know it's it's a it's a really interesting approach yeah and it it takes time it's it's a long game Mm. it's not a Mm. short game and i think that like you know to give you an example is they see it online, they come meet us in person, they love it. But then the last and most important part of the whole thing is mm-hmm. your product needs to sell. So they could see the data that's publicly yeah. available to them on spins in the US or other Nielsen or any type of reporting that they could see. And if Midday Squares doesn't move product in the stores, they even if they love us to all the extent, unfortunately, they probably won't give us a chance because 
they have numbers that they have to hit. They have goals that they have to meet. And so one thing that was working really well for us is our brand. We didn't just put it everywhere. We put it strategically in where we needed to be because we knew we would do well there. So our data and our storytelling from fact-based selling was strong. So you had three ways of hitting them. You had the social media where they got this energy and this like wow factor. The second thing is when they saw us in person, they actually trusted us. They felt trust and relatability. And then the third thing was is we already had proven record of being able to sell. So when we mm-hmm. spoke to Target, you said Target. That's one of our one of my favorite mm-hmm. partners, and I love them. Mm-hmm. They're amazing. Um, is we went through three buyers till we got in there, three different sure. buyers at the desk, and we became friends with each one of them. And each mm-hmm. one of them helped us with the next one. And this is where the friendship part kicked in so powerfully is when a new buyer came on the desk, the other one would say, this brand is really good. We got to get them in here. It's going to be amazing for Target and they're great partners and let's build with them. So when they got an internal team member vouching at that level, they yeah. already had a good image of us and thinking, hey, yeah, let's, let's work with this company. Let's meet them. Let's talk to them. Let's, have a, let's set up a dinner together. Let's go play top golf. You know, so we would do all these different things and it was a long game. It was like we're watering a plant. You got to, in order for the plant to keep growing, you need to keep watering it. It's not just a one time, hey, nice to see you. Let's make magic. No, it's like, mm. hey, how are you feeling? You hurt your back? You know, here, here's someone I saw for my back. Can I help mm. you? It's not about, hey, do I, can you give me more placement in the store? Hey, can you give us a discount on this? And I think that that's where Midday Squares has figured out its finesse mm. is the idea of balancing friendship with business and transaction. And not crossing either line um, and marrying them together as an art. And I think a lot of people use typical just sales strategies, which these buyers see thousands. Every day. Every yeah, day. Thousands every day. a month. Well, if, if, um, if relationship building is the water, let's call social media the fertilizer. Yeah, oh, I like uh, that. I like that. So, or, the, so, or the poison. Yeah, well, <laughs> or, the, or the poison. Or the, it can spin right. on you, right? He's right. Like it, could, it can spin on you, man. And like it has. I, so I'm... Um, you know, you, you're very transparent. I mean, if I was, a, I'd be, you know, if I was a target buyer, I, I don't want to keep using target, but I was a buyer and I'd say, geez, these guys are having trouble making product. I'd, I'd, I'd start to get a little worried. You're very transparent in that. Where did you, where did, where did, what's the origin story behind the social media approach? You just didn't, I mean, that's very it's unique. Very, it's did, very did, unique what was for inspired? sure. Yeah. Well, what inspired so, it? So my partners are introverts. I'm an extrovert. So when I was in my previous journeys with the fitness and the, the, the clothing, I use social media with radical transparency to build the brand. And they both built brands, but they didn't build operationally well. So when my partners saw that, they were like, this guy gets community. He understands how to build community. So when it came to them, it was like, I said to them like this, very simple. I said at the beginning, I said, in order for us to break through this market, it's a, the CPG market is one of the hardest industries to, to make it. And whatever I make it is to actually scale a company. Um, because it's dominated by 12 and 12 large corps, 12, 15 large corps that own 70 to 80% of the grocery store revenue. And they have massive infrastructure built from manufacturing to distribution channels, to DSD, to having team members that could actually fulfill the shelves, right? Everyone else, it's just, it's third parties and, 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 and brokers, and you, and, yeah, brokers sure. which is, you depend on everybody, right? So I said to them, I said, Hey, if we could build fandom, like rock stars do, like literally a rock band does like a Backstreet Boys or Spice Girls or whatever, or, you know, any artist, then at least we'll build a support that's emotional, which will make people go to the stores to get the product and then sell them for us. So they would buy for their families. They would go to the dinner table and they'd be like, hey, this brand is so cool. It's so fun. You got to see their storytelling. It's so real. And here, I want you guys to try the product. So they would then go acquire us. These super fans would go acquire us mm. 
five, 10 other fans. And that would do the, that would do the marketing and sales work for us. And then they would go get us into retailers because they would go and say, Hey, their friend, that's a buyer. You've got to have midday squares in the store. Their company is the coolest company. So the way we did it was simply just show raw content of how we build the business. Cause no one was showing the behind the scenes of businesses in 2018. Everyone was scared to show imperfection. So I said, if we just do that, it's a huge risk. But keeping up with the Kardashians, TV ratings were on fire because people love drama, family drama. <laughs> and then Shark Tank and Dragon's Den and Le yeah. de Dragon was on fire as well from TV ratings because people were so curious now about entrepreneurship, not just products, but how do you raise money? What goes on in the company? So I said, if we just take the curtain a little bit more open and show everything behind the scenes from hiring people to, to getting into fights to how do we make, how do we raise money? How do we deal with a legal battle? People will be very curious because they haven't seen it before. And then the third thing was, we're three characters. My sister is a badass, you know, CEO and she loves manufacturing. She loves building things. So she has her own like character in that sense. My brother-in-law is a software engineer and he's very nerdy data-driven guy. So people love that. And then you have me who's an energy bunny that loves to make noise, which I bring positivity to the world. So you bring those three people together and they each have their own fans. And that brings swooped into midday squares. So once we start posting all this stuff on social media, we start to see the sales come in. And then we're like, that reinforced us to invest in our first hire, which was a videographer. Before a food scientist, it was a videographer. And that videographer's sole job was just to follow us around and film everything. Uh, the year 2022 was difficult, was challenging. Uh, walk us through the year, this past year, uh, some of the things that you had to uh, to deal with, uh, um, with sale culturally. And what are some of the things that, that really made the, the past 12 months, uh, difficult, challenging, and now you're on the upside, really things are really looking up for you right now. Oh yeah. Last year was, was hell. And the reason why it was hell was because midday squares did a transition in June, 2022. So right before June, 2022, midday squares was killing it. We were having very high sales months, but are something in our Something in our margin didn't make sense. So the company, everything was going up in price from a supply chain side. So all our ingredients, all our shipping was getting out of control and the business no longer was viable. So even though we were killing it on a sales perspective, the business itself wasn't viable. And we had the wrong people in place at the time that were in our executive positions that really made, in my opinion, poor decisions. Now, those poor decisions did have effects. So in June, 2022, we had no choice but to change the product. So we went from a two-square product, so for the last three and a half years, we were two squares, so in one package, 70 grams, to shrinking that in half to go down on a one square and raise prices by 27%. So we did this change in the height of the economy going to a little bit of a weird zone, and we just threw it on. We changed the product. We reformulated the product. We, did, we redid our supply chain. We raised prices. We did, we did shrink. We, we shrunk the product in half, and... That was a shock to the system because what happened was, was we were honest. We told our consumers in videos and everything, here's why we're changing it. If we don't change it, we have three months of cash left and the business will close. So midday scores will not exist. If we change it, we have a chance of saving the company and actually making sure that these products are hopefully around for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And how we explained it was we explained the intricacies of where our costs went up. So cocoa prices, shipping prices, um, you know, nut our nut prices, all of these different things, we showed the price increases and how it affects our business. And the consumers actually reacted extremely well to that type of honest transparency of why we did it. Now, when we did that change, 
our barcode, our UPC code on our package was too small to scan at retail. But when we tried it in one of our stores, it worked. So that's why we, we bought up 4 million packs of these things. It's a lot of money spent. We were hyped up. We shipped out about a million bars right off the bat that didn't scan or a million five bars off the bat. And in order to fix that was hell because basically at store level, nothing was scanning. So people at the cashiers and all the store managers, instead of typing in the number to register it as a midday square sale, they would just type in grocery item and it would scan. The problem with that is you would never know the stock levels at the retailers. So it wouldn't trigger as midday squares going down in stock. So at Walmart, for example, in Canada, it would say that we have 100 bars in stock when we really had four. Because So then Walmart's trigger system wouldn't reorder the product because they thought there was 100 bars there. So we were not getting any reorders. We went from doing $1.5 million million months to 470,000. Wow. So that caused a, an effect where our, our, our company was like, oh my God, do we make the wrong decision here? Do we fuck up the whole company by switching the packages? Should we just raise the prices for the two square and kept it two square? And then long story short, we couldn't get the product off the shelf. So then we had to just put stickers on every package that we had. And that was a hellhole in the labor. Then we had this whole problem. Machines broke down and it just dominoed. And we thought we, we put in our P&L, that this whole one, two to one square changeover would last three months until it picks back up. It lasted six months of dread. So the company almost went bankrupt. Then finally, November, December, things started picking oh, up again. Five, five, six months ago. Yeah, yeah, this was hell. Okay. We, wow. We, we, our quarter was terrible. Um, and then finally, November, December, things started finally making sense. The cons- the, we fixed the retail issues. We have new packaging put out, new barcodes, that UPC codes that scanned. We got our distributors back on track because when you do a chain UPC code change, they erase all the past data. So if they were ordering typically 200 bars for every store because they knew our rhythm and our, and our velocities, they were now treating our new, our, our new product like an actual new item that had never had sales data, which it didn't, but you knew that we had a brand that actually had things. So they were only ordering 15 bars to put it through. So the, there was a discrepancy where we would be out of stock every single store and our customers got livid. They were wild. And in the end, um, finally, November, December, everything started to make sense. And finally it was the right decision because we started to get our velocities back up. Sales started driving back up. We got rid of the, you know, we got, we changed our, our entire team on the executive level, uh, not entire, 70% of the team on the executive level. And we started to do the process, everything by process, everything by data, and finally, now January, February, March, you're seeing big wins. And this marches are a lot. We, we just did, I think, 1.8 million um, last month in sales. And you know, we're we're getting very close to that two million mark. Hopefully, the next one, month or two will be there per month. And um, that was a big change. But dude, that was that was a roller coaster wow. of hell. <laughs> That's amazing. So we're into uh, April now, and things are looking up for uh, midday squares. So what's what's next for for you and, and the company? So we because we own our manufacturing, that's been a very difficult process. We built a, a factory over the last four and a half years, and it's still not fully optimized. So we're still focused on optimization of getting the capacities up, getting the margin to where we need to get it to. So this year is all about getting to profitability. So by hopefully by June 
Latest July will actually be broken even, which is super exciting for the first time. And we plan to grow from May 23 to May 24 to hopefully 26, you know, book 26 to $28 million of revenue, maybe 30 if we have a really, really good year. Um, and, you know, profitable. And, and, and after that, it's like, hey, can we build this to be, you know, a two, three, four hundred million dollar, you know, chocolate company in, in this better for you space across North America? Because right now we're only in 4,500 stores across Canada and the United States. There's 47,000 available doors for us to go into because our competitors are in the 47,000 doors. So we have a lot of room to play. It's just all about focus execution and to continue telling that story and building the fans and delivering great products that fit the market, not just uh, random products that, you know, are, 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 are semi-okay. You know, we got to deliver greatness and innovation if we want to re- keep the trust of the consumer. Mm-hmm. So, uh, how do we get in touch with uh, Midday Squares? Uh, how do we learn more about your products? So, you can follow us on social media, Midday Squares, on TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And on our website, www.middaysquares.com, you can either order on, on our website if you want a product to try or go look at the store locator. Our products available at places in the United States like Target, Whole Foods, Sprouts, Wegmans, Fresh Market, um, and in Canada, Sobeys, Metro, um, Walmart. Uh, all the health food stores like Whole Foods, Tao, Avril, you got it all over. But again, the product is located in the refrigerated section. That is the key. It's not where the bars are. It's in the mm. refrigerated section. So yeah. Or if you want to come visit our factory, message us on social and we'll see if we can make that happen. Jake, thanks so much for joining us on the Food Professor podcast. Uh, it was a real treat uh, for Savannah and I get to know you and know the business and, and see uh, a little bit behind what happens on social media to get to the real people in the real you not that <laughs> we're seeing anything other than that yeah. on social media listen congratulations on on pushing through these things are never easy it's a great story lots of lessons for for uh folks who are similarly oriented to, to get out on their own and, and do innovation in the food business so once again thanks for taking time out of your uh, no doubt busy day to join us thank you for taking the time to even give us a voice both of you um it's much appreciated and and we look forward to meeting in person and having a good time All right. Merci, Jake. Merci, thank you. Let's talk about Eat Just. Uh, So a previous guest, Josh Tetrick, was on talking about his uh, cultured meat. And uh, they just had another milestone that he actually kind of hinted at, that the FDA has approved uh, them as a a safe-to-consume product. That's a huge milestone for them. So I think they're starting to hook up with chefs. Now, on the other side of the world and of the story italy is banned uh, cultured meat what, not, what do you think not yet not yet they're oh, working okay. on it and they're also working on on uh, banning chat gpt as well they're i think they're planning to ban a whole lot i mean this is italy right uh so yeah. this week's government not next week's this week's government <laughs> yeah. wants to ban I mean, I, you, you, I mean, Italy, Italian politics is just amazingly give, exciting compared to ours. I'll give Italy one a big credit. I, I, the the nation does a very good job representing its food and holding manufacturers and brands accountable, so that when they say it's a type of tomato, it's got to be from that region. Like they're very rigorous. They're even around the the pizzas. Like I think, they, and that's done well for them, right? People know yeah, it's Parmesan. And they and did regular. ban uh, the use of, of insects as ingredients for pasta. They, so they did do that. I think it was about six months ago. So it's consistent to your point, Michael. I actually do believe that uh, uh, food is, uh, is, I mean, I think food is important Food's for very everyone, important. but, it's but a food institutionally for Italians, mm. they actually feel that governments have to 
protect the integrity of food systems and traditions. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that I think they do actually a very good job of that. Um, yeah, it's in, so, actually, Quebec is a little bit like that, you know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, just back to the uh, FDA approval. Does that uh, does that probably mean that the Canadian uh, Canadians would look at that? The Canadian government would look at that, and then uh, that would help it go through here in Canada as well. I mean, we we generally think that they would look positively on an FDA approval. Would you Would you agree? I don't know exactly how people would react here. I mean, we we got the SM5s. I mean, the SM5s will have a huge say and because they do represent animal protein production in Canada, uh, poultry, uh, eggs, and uh, and dairy. I mean, they have mm-hmm. a huge influence in Ottawa. You know that, right? Mm-hmm. And at mm-hmm. Health Canada as well. The hope that I have uh, is uh, is in relation to Health Canada. Health Canada has more power than Ag Canada. And when it comes to dairy, Health Canada is not all that influenced by dairy. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You saw what happened with the food guide. And so I actually think that there's probably going to be some interesting discussions at Health Canada. But I do believe that Ag Canada, Agriculture Canada, will be charged with the task of defending animal proteins in general, and specifically the SM5s. I mean, there's a legacy. There's baggage there. Mm. Quotas worth over $30 billion. I mean, are are you going to start allowing cultured meat in the market just like Mm. that? Yeah, I don't know. I I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it can't be much of a threat to anyone at this point. I mean, you'd need need like an ocean filled of those containers to make a dent in the percentage of, you know, food that is created and you know, cultured meat. I mean, it, it, it's got to be, I, I don't know, maybe they're forward thinking and saying in 20 years, we better protect the future now, but it feels like it's inevitable at some point. And it's a small percentage. I mean, it's never going to be in the short term. I shouldn't say never, never say never, but you know, at some point it's, it's not going to be making a double digit dent. But my only concern, again, it goes back to the GM, uh, GMO salmon. I think they just got it Mm. wrong, not labeling it. Uh, And before it even became uh, legally commercialized, it was already banned by grocers. I mean, that's, Mm. so it's the technology is misunderstood. And you can feel that right now there's already some lobbying going on. Uh, I think France is going to be next after Italy, uh, mm-hmm. wanting to ban the product, the technology. Um, but we are influenced by the U.S., and I actually think that the U.S. will go ahead with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll be interesting to see exactly how grocers like Kroger, for example, and Walmart uh, react to uh, to the uh, to the USDA's approval, which will happen sometime this summer or this fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it just seems to have a uh, what they did. If you look at what they did in Singapore, they start with chefs, chefs making products from it, and then they start to take it into a commercial, you know, into into grocers. So anyway, well, it will be sold as a premium product for sure. Well, for, for sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then a after that, premium product, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but uh, I mean, the upside, the upsides are in, are incredible. I mean, it's uh, when you have to th- you. When you think about biosecurity, food recalls, uh, efficiencies across the supply chain, uh, disease waste. transfer. When you're producing, when you're producing chicken, yeah, yeah. you're not producing a chicken for the wings, uh, the legs, and the breasts. It's you're just producing what you want. You're not you're not discarding the rest of the animal. You're using the whole thing. So, yeah. environmentalists will actually be pleased by that. And of course. 
and animal welfare uh, advocates are 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 on right board with well. this, of course. Yeah, from chicken and turkey to oranges. So uh, I saw you post on social media that uh, orange. Futures look at orange. Have you looked at orange futures? Oh I, I didn't God. until I, 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 I don't drink a lot of orange juice anymore. I found it got flavorless for Nobody a while. Nobody does. Orange juice futures are way up, and it reminds me of the movie Trading Places. Have you seen that movie? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> classic, just classic. So right now, orange juice futures are, are at a record high. It's, they haven't been as high as, as right now in 50 years. And mm. so my guess is because crops in, in Florida were impacted by, by the weather with early frosts and things like that. It's been really cold in, in Florida. And people don't know this, but uh, in Florida, in January, February, it can get below zero very easily in the morning. I mm. When I was there uh, in Tampa Bay last year, there were a couple of mornings I got out and it was actually minus one, minus two. Mm. And that's mm. deadly for for trees, uh, especially for orange growers. And so that's what happened. But again, the world doesn't rely too much on Florida anymore. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I think a lot of the, the market is being pushed by fl the Florida story, but you got Brazil now producing way more than ever before. China is producing way more. I mean, it's a little bit more diverse. Mexico as well. Yeah, and South ones. Africa is a big producer now of, of lime and citrus. And so actually, I think South Africa is number four or five in the world. So it's not it's not what it used to. And frankly, if you remember, uh, Pepsi actually sold Tropicana two years ago. Uh, why? Because the, the the orange market is not that strong anymore. A lot of people mm -hmm. are moving on. Yeah. Uh, the older generations are still sticking to orange juice in the morning, but now people are just drinking. Well, too first of sugar. all, too much sugar is 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 a bit of too much sugar. But a lot of people just don't eat breakfast. That's one thing. Two. Yeah. Uh, the younger generations are interested in other kind of juices like cranberry, blueberry, mm -hmm. and if there is orange juice in a in a in a in a bottle, there's there's other stuff in there. You know, they mix things around much yeah, more so colorants than colorants and all kinds of yeah, things. exactly, mm -hmm. much more so than 20 years ago. So well, anyway, if, if anybody's from the Orange Juice Council of whoever is probably mad at us for talking about this, come on the show and and uh, talk about orange juice and uh, how you're going to make it better. Consumption per capita for orange juice has dropped 30 percent in the last 10 uh -huh. years. Oh well, they got to get Canada. going then. Well, they got to oh, get yeah. going there. You know, so they need they, marketing, marketing. They, they need, they need, they need something. Um, uh, I just wanted to give a quick shout out uh, to. Uh, J.P. McMahon, our guest, uh, our yes. Irish chef. Yes. Chef's uh, new book, An Alphabet of NR, uh, is just, just shipped, and I just got my copy signed from J.P., and uh, it is a fabulous book. Uh, run, don't walk to go get this book. I'll put a link in the show notes. I think it's available on Amazon now, but it goes letter by letter through all these ingredients, and off mic, I was telling you about how much he hates black pepper. Uh, he says, you know, black pepper is just an anomaly. I hate black pepper, so there's no black pepper in this restaurant. Uh, let's great episode, and uh, let's uh, let's leave it there and and uh, enjoy your ham for Easter. Uh, yes. I will enjoy I will enjoy my turkey. And uh, until then, I'm Michael LeBlanc, consumer growth consultant, podcaster, keynote speaker, and you are. I'm the food professor, Sylvain Chalabois. See you next week, everybody. <laughs>